Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, we're going to be doing another episode of trying to find the history behind a legend. This time around, it's the famous biblical figure, King David. Up front, I want to say something that I hope is not incredibly controversial, but I'm sure it will be anyway. The Bible is not a historical document, neither the Hebrew Bible nor the Christian Bible. I haven't read the Quran, so I can't speak on that. If that's something you're not comfortable hearing, I suggest possibly rethinking your worldview or maybe just skipping this episode entirely. The reign of King David, at least as written in the Bible, is almost 100% fiction. In fact, in recent centuries, up until relatively recently, it was just believed that King David was not a historical figure, but maybe an amalgamation of several ancient Hebrew rulers. However, by looking into David's narrative in the Bible, in the book of Samuel, which is divided in two in the Christian Old Testament, and the book of Chronicles, again divided in two for the Old Testament, maybe we can find some connections to what we know happened in actual history. This episode will definitely be more David-adjacent than David-centric because most of the history we have is over the historic United Kingdom of Israel that David was said to have ruled over sometime around 1000 BCE rather than any individual king who ruled over it. Think of this more as how do we get from a theoretical founding of Israel with the early Israelites to the very real kingdom we know existed by the time of the Babylonian exile in the 6th century BCE. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to the southern Levant around 1000 BCE in Unearthing the House of David. <laughs> The following is an excerpt from the book of Samuel, traditionally dated as being written sometime around or before the 6th century BCE. A champion named Goliath who was from Gath came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, then we will be your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. 
As the Philistine moved closer to him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. As I said before, the Bible is not a historic document, but obviously you can't talk about King David without talking about THE David story. But with that, we should move on to talk about the background leading up to our main story. Let's start off with the area that would come to be known as the Kingdom of Israel. During the Bronze Age in the Levant, basically the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea, the big name of the day was Canaan. It was a region and civilization that flourished sometime within the 2nd millennium BCE. It is mentioned many times in the Hebrew and Christian Bibles, though usually as a completely separate entity from the early Hebrew people. In more recent years, this narrative has been debunked, instead suggesting that the Hebrew people of the biblical era were actually a subculture of the Canaanites instead of a completely different ethnic origin. During the Late Bronze Age, around 1500 BCE, Canaan started coming under the control of its very powerful western neighbor, Egypt. The Bronze Age collapse in the eastern Mediterranean around 1100 would see Egyptian rule decline within the Levant, making way for the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Let's now talk about one of the groups mentioned in the Bible passage I read, the Philistines. They were originally from somewhere within the Aegean Sea, possibly from the island of Crete, before migrating to the mainland around the 12th century BCE. During this time, the ancient Israelites would have been gaining traction in the area now that the region of Canaan had also somewhat split apart into its different subcultures. It's believed that the Philistines and Israelites came into conflict with each other during the Age of the Hebrew Judges, a concept I'll get into later. The period of warfare between the two cultures would come to form much of the historical narrative seen in the Bible, especially during the events listed in the book of Samuel, which details the reigns of David, his predecessor Saul, and his son Solomon. Perhaps one of these battles became legendary and was eventually transformed into the story of David and Goliath. What we do know is that the Philistines eventually were briefly brought to heel by the kingdom of Israel. While we don't know the name of the king or kings who conquered the Philistines during this time, in the Bible at least, it is recorded as the son of a shepherd who would go on to be one of the greatest kings in Jewish history. Let's start off the main bulk of this episode with an overview of who David is according to the Bible. That way we have a base narrative that we can compare and contrast with what we know about actual history. He was said to be the youngest of eight sons of a sheep farmer named Jesse. David was a young boy during the reign of King Saul, who the Bible attests as being the first king of a united Israel. Saul was chosen by God to rule the Israelites, but over time, God lost his faith in Saul. At one point it got so bad that a demonic spirit, said to be sent by God himself, began exerting its control over Saul. God sent word to his prophet Samuel that someone was needed to help aid Saul during this time of hardship, and that certain someone would also happen to be the future king of Israel as chosen by the Lord. Samuel is led to the house of Jesse and believes the chosen king to be one of Jesse's older sons, who are all big burly men. Instead, God points him to young David, 
David is sent to Saul's court where he helps soothe the king by playing the harp. Afterwards, he is brought on as one of Saul's shield bearers. Some ambiguous amount of time later, though in my opinion it couldn't have been very much later, the Philistines began acting up and spark a new fire in the war between the Philistines and the Israelites. This time, however, the Philistines have a secret weapon, a man named Goliath who, according to the book of Samuel, was approximately 9 feet tall. The Israelites are terrified of this behemoth of a man and refuse to take him up on his offer of single combat to prove which army is best. David, meanwhile, despite being Saul's shield bearer, is back on his father's farm, when Jesse tells his younger son that he should bring some food for his older brothers who are on the battlefield. We all know how the story goes from there. David volunteers to fight Goliath and brings him down with just a slingshot. Well, just a slingshot and his faith in God. Saul is impressed by the might of the young boy and promotes him to be a military leader. During this time, David becomes very close friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. Their relationship is a bit ambiguous and it's been argued over whether or not their relationship was just platonic or any bit romantic. A member of Israel's Knesset, the nation's legislative branch, once argued that they were in love as part of a larger argument to allow gay men in the Israeli military. As David's popularity grows, Saul becomes distrusting of the young man and plans to have him killed because Saul believes David must be gunning for the throne. After David survived what was supposed to be a suicide quest, Saul reluctantly allows the young man to marry his daughter Michal. Jonathan and David also enter into an unbreakable bond of friendship, which further strains the relationship between David and Saul. Several times in the narrative, it's said that Saul just straight up throws spears at David, but the younger man just happens to walk away at the right time before he was ever hit, like some sort of wily coyote roadrunner bit. Eventually, David gets the hint that Saul is onto him, probably all those spear throwings, and runs away. Later, David and a small army of disgruntled Israelites flee to the safety of the Philistines, where they're gladly taken in as enemies of Saul. The king of Israel consults with a medium over what to do, and the medium summons the spirit of the prophet Samuel. Samuel berates Saul and warns him that he and all his sons will die if they go to war with the Philistines. Undeterred by this, Saul leads the Israelites against the Philistines. Unsurprisingly, Saul and all of his sons, Jonathan included, are killed. After the battle, David is brought before the elders of Israel and anointed as the new king. In a final act to honor his friendship with Jonathan, David takes his friend's son to live in the palace, refusing to completely kill off Saul's bloodline, which I guess was expected of him. From there, David goes on to conquer the city of Jerusalem and makes it his new capital. He wants to build a grand temple to house the Ark that holds the Ten Commandments, but the prophet Nathan tells him, Nah, God says your son is destined to do that. Years later, the Kingdom of Israel is at war with the Kingdom of Ammon, their eastern neighbor. While his soldiers are at war, David is looking out from his palace and sees a woman bathing on a roof. Her name is Bathsheba. David has her summoned to the palace. Things happen and the level of consent is not said. Bathsheba becomes pregnant with David's child. 
Just one problem, Bathsheba is married to a man named Uriah. David schemes to have Uriah brought home in the hopes that he'll sleep with Bathsheba and believe the future child is his own. Unfortunately, this doesn't happen. Coming up with another bad plan, David has Uriah sent to the front lines in the hopes he'll be killed. This plan works. God is very upset with David because of all this. Bathsheba and David get married, but the prophet Nathan warns them of God's feelings. As a result, their child dies during birth. Eventually, they have another son named Solomon. God still brings ruin to the house of David, though not completely by causing David's sons from previous marriages to fight each other and plan coups against their father. None of them succeed. Eventually, when he is old and close to death, David is convinced by Bathsheba and Nathan to proclaim Solomon as his official heir. David does so. He then dies at the age of 70, having reigned for about 40 years. Now that we have the biblical baseline there, let's talk about how things really happened. As I said, the way history is depicted in the Bible is inaccurate. Was there ever an Abraham, Moses, or Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat? I mean, no. People possibly somewhat analogous to them? Maybe. So let's get a history up to David in order to get things settled. The people that we're dealing with are the Israelites, which is different from the modern-day Israeli nationality. The Israelites were an ethnic group who lived in the region of Canaan. They were heavily defined by the use of their specific dialect of the Canaanite language, aka the Hebrew language and their monaltry of their god of storms and battle, Yahweh. Monaltry is the main worship of a single god without denying the existence of other gods. It's also said that there might have been some ethnic mixing between the Israelites and exiles or non-Israelite Canaan slaves from Egypt, which would lend a historical viewpoint to the story of Moses in the book of Exodus. It's unlikely that the Israelites themselves were ever enslaved en masse in Egypt. It's also from Egypt where we get our first usage of the word Israelite, or at least is mostly considered the first usage of the term. In the very late 13th century BCE, the Egyptian pharaoh Merneptah had a victory stele carved that is translated as, Israel is laid to waste and his seed is not. Egyptian grammarists also believe that this specific use of the word Israel is being used to signify a people as a whole, and not just an individual or even a specific nation. Those early Israelites mostly led nomadic lifestyles, living in the land occupied by modern-day Israel and Palestine. Over the following decades after their name drop in Egypt, the Israelites began building towns and growing in population, especially in the northern regions of Canaan where the farmland was better. They eventually grew to be one of the most powerful players in the region, though whether it was through warfare or natural synchronization with the other Canaanite subcultures is unsure. We do know that as the Israelites grew and enveloped other cultures, they started adding some qualities of the other gods to Yahweh. Things finally reached a fever pitch when Yahweh was made equal to the Canaanite god El. El was the head of the Canaanite pantheon, akin to a Zeus or Odin type figure. Eventually, worship of Yahweh eclipsed El. 
Before being just worshipped as a god of war and thunder, Yahweh was now said to be the creator of the universe. El was used as another name for Yahweh. In fact, the El in Israel comes from El. If we take any sort of vague history in the Bible as fact, it may have to do with this time period, specifically the time period mentioned in the book of Judges. During this age, the Israelites were divided into different tribes, with the Bible calling them the Twelve Tribes. In the Bible, the Twelve Tribes are named after the Twelve Sons of Jacob, who in the Bible is later named Israel. The most famous of these sons for most people would be Joseph with his rainbow coat, but historically speaking, the most important son would be Judah, but we'll get to that soon enough. During this period of multiple tribes, the Bible says they were occasionally ruled over by figures called judges. In the Bible, the judges were sort of like proto-monarch leaders of the Israelites who would help them out during times of strife. The most famous of these judges is probably Samson, the guy with Herculean strength and beautiful long hair before it's all cut off by Delilah. In actual history, these judges may have just been tribal chieftains who may have played more major roles over other tribes during times of hardship. That's just a personal theory though, something akin to a Roman dictator. But again, like many things in the Bible, it's also possible that the judges were just a complete fabrication. But as we head closer to the idea of a united Israel under a monarchy, we first have to talk about where that monarchy would call its home, the city of Jerusalem. The biblical narrative is that King David conquered Jerusalem for the Israelite people. Obviously, things aren't as clear in legitimate history. Jerusalem had been active as some sort of hub, albeit a minor one, for the people in Canaan since at least the 17th century BCE. A few centuries later, it was occupied by the Egyptians after Egyptian expansion into the Levant during the reign of pharaohs like the I, the father of Hatshepsut, who was covered in this show a while back in episode 9. During this period, correspondences between Egypt and Mesopotamia, referred to as the Amarna letters, make mention of what the Canaanites referred to as Arushalim. This would fit with the proposed etymology of the city's name meaning Foundation of the God Shalim, foundation in ancient Canaanite being Uru and Salem of Jerusalem coming from Shalim, the ancient Canaanite god of dusk. The Amarna letters mention the leader of Jerusalem as Abdi Heba, who actually in the letters claims that he is not the actual leader of the city and insists he's just a common soldier, so who knows the real story there. We don't know much about the pre-Israelite citizens of Jerusalem. The Bible calls the people David conquered the Jebusites. This is the only mention of the Jebusites in all of history. The previously accepted historical theory, which is still accepted to some degree, is that the Jebusites were a local tribe of the Hittite civilization, a massive ancient culture that existed in this time period who lived further north in modern-day Turkey. Some more modern Palestinian politicians have made the argument that the Jebusites were actually their ancestors. To make a long story short, we don't actually know who was occupying Jerusalem before the Israelites took control of the city. 
According to the Bible, Jerusalem was this impenetrable fortress of a city that the Israelites had failed to conquer during the time of the Judges. They had failed through many attempts until one of David's soldiers found a secret entry into the city via an entrance that was allegedly connected to the Gihon Spring, the main water source for the city. In the mid-19th century, an expedition near Jerusalem discovered a vertical cave system that connects to the Gihon Spring. Warren's Shaft, the cave system that was named after the lead archaeologist of the expedition, has been theorized to be the secret entrance David's troops found that allowed them entrance past the city's walls. This theory is also under heavy scrutiny as, I've said before, the Bible's story of the siege of Jerusalem may be just that, a story. And of course, the city of Jerusalem back then would have been much smaller than it is today. The area traditionally described as King David's Jerusalem is centered around an archaeological site referred to as the City of David. It is located just south of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It is also known to the local Palestinian citizens as Wadi Hilwa. The site has unearthed several structures that appear to be dated to before the alleged rule of David, causing some archaeologists to describe the ruins they find as Jebusite in origin. Some archaeologists have even interpreted their findings there as part of David's palace, though these interpretations are definitely in the minority. Also, I know it's an important archaeological dig site, but the two main structures unearthed in the city of David are called Stepped Stone Structure and Large Stone Structure, which, like, can we at least get better names for them? The city of Jerusalem was said to be the seat of the United Kingdom of Israel, the Israel ruled by Saul, David, and Solomon, a historical concept which, seemingly each and every year, is becoming more and more uncertain as to its historic truth. However, this kingdom would not last forever, if it even existed. It would eventually split in half, and only one kingdom of the Israelites would go on to inherit the city of David. However, both claim to be the true House of David. According to the biblical narrative, David was originally just the king of the tribe of Judah. However, the other Israelite tribes eventually accepted him as the king of a united Israel. Again, this kingdom possibly didn't even exist. After David came his son Solomon, after Solomon came his son Rehoboam. In the Bible, the people in the north of the united Israel, who represented ten tribes of the original biblical twelve tribes, were unsatisfied with the rule of Rehoboam. They led a revolt against his rule. The revolt ended with the kingdom split in half. Rehoboam would go on to rule a new southern kingdom called Judah, named after the tribe of his family while the northern tribe selected a former attendant to Solomon named Jeroboam, and his new northern kingdom was known as Israel. Since one of the largest cities in the kingdom of Israel at this time was Samaria, it is sometimes called the Kingdom of Samaria. We know that both of these kingdoms, or at least Samaria, existed in the 9th century BCE due to another stele. This one comes from the Assyrians, Israel's neighbor to the east. It makes mention of a leader named Ahab the Israelite. It's said that the land he lived in covered much of the area as denoted by the idea of the Samarian kingdom. 
This area was the regions around Samaria, the region of Galilee, parts of the land on either side of the Jordan River, and a region now known as the Shephelah, or the Judean foothills. It was apparently recently founded by this point, which would make sense if the United Kingdom of Israel collapsed after the reign of Solomon in the late 10th century BCE. Several early 1st millennium BCE texts mention the house of Omeride as being the rulers of this kingdom of Israel. The Bible portrays the Omeride dynasty as polytheists who turned their back on Yahweh and eventually married into the ruling house of the kingdom of Judah in an attempt to lay claim as the legitimate rulers of God's chosen people. This dynasty would not last long as several other short-lived Sumerian dynasties would also come around. The Kingdom of Israel was eventually sacked by the Neo-Assyrian Empire in the late 8th century BCE. There is no mention by the Assyrians of the Kingdom of Judah. Historians believe that the Kingdom of Judah was much less developed than the Sumerian Kingdom. It was possible that the Assyrians didn't even recognize any difference between the two. However, the Kingdom of Judah survived this thrashing. A century later, however, the southern kingdom, who still remained within the bloodline of David, was captured by the Neo-Babylonian Empire, thus resulting in the period known as the Babylonian Exile. By this point, Judah had essentially been reduced to a vassal of Egypt, whom they asked for help in order to survive the onslaught of the Neo-Assyrian Empire a century beforehand. Jerusalem was taken and the temple built by King Solomon was destroyed. In the end, both kingdoms would fall. The sovereignty of the house of David was wiped from the earth. The Jewish people were mostly scattered from their homeland. However, this period of exile was incredibly important, as it would build an identity for the Israelites not just in the future, but also their past. It's generally considered today that most of the Tanakh was compiled after the Babylonian exile during the Second Temple period that started around 520 BCE. Although fragments of ancient text identified as parts of the Hebrew Bible are found every now and then, it doesn't change our modern day understanding that much of the Bible was written or compiled after the line of David was wiped out. In this new era of Judaism, one where the people needed to come back together, they needed to create a strong foundation myth that could help unite all the people of their religion. Well, not all of them, but I'll get to that in a moment. This new founding myth would go on to talk about how the disparate tribes of the Israelite were all one family at one point, descendants of a man named Jacob, who was renamed Israel. Though these tribes were split apart, they would eventually come back together when a man from the tribe of Judah conquered their most important city for the Jewish faith. Maybe the name David actually meant something to the Jewish people. The house of David did exist in history, even if the house's founder is still shrouded within the shadows of history. This dynasty was probably revered by the Israelites, so they decided to write about how their city was once ruled by the founder of the house of David. And of course, the Jewish people would even go on to say that the house of David would come again. In this story, it had been the group to unite them. It was a family bloodline that had ruled both the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. 
There would come a time in the future where the bloodline of David would bring about a new figure who would lead the Jewish people into a new age of redemption. This figure would be anointed as their leader. For some, this figure already came when the Persian Emperor Cyrus the Great defeated the Neo-Babylonian Empire and allowed the Israelites to return to their homeland. For others, this figure was a man from Galilee, a simple carpenter who was said to be a descendant of the House of David who lived during the days of Roman occupation in Judea. And yet for others, this anointed one is still yet to come. They will be called Mashiach, the Messiah the final ruler of the House of David. Let's get some final house cleaning done before we bring this episode to a close. Throughout the episode, I've kept saying that we know the House of David exists. In the 1990s, archaeological digs in the site of Tel Dan in Israel uncovered another stele that dates to around the 9th century, about a century after the supposed reign of David. Though the carvings on the stele are either outright missing or faded with time, there's an inscription that most people who read it accept it as saying B-Y-T-D-W-D, which would translate into the ancient Hebrew reading for the term House of David. This is the only historical reference to David we have outside of the Bible. Also, I now want to talk about a very important difference between some ethnic groups. Like I said earlier, Israelite and Israeli are not synonyms. Neither are Israelite, Hebrew, and Jew. Israelite, in terms of Judaism, refers to the descendants of the sons of Jacob, aka the members of the twelve tribes of Israel. Hebrew is a term that includes those who worshipped Yahweh before the twelve tribes, so figures like Abraham and Noah, as well as the descendants of those twelve tribes. That means people who are Jewish as well as Samaritans. Samaritans belong to an ethno-religious group that claims descendants from the Israelites of the northern kingdom of Israel who were not deported after the destruction of the kingdom by the Neo-Assyrians. Jews are the descendants of the tribe of Judah, but only after the period where the tribe of Judah absorbed some of the other tribes of Israelites after the Neo-Assyrian conquest. And finally, Israeli is the term used to denote a citizen of the modern-day nation of Israel. I never really know how these episodes about famous figures with ambiguous historical standings are gonna go. Obviously, when the only non-biblical source of information we have over an individual is just one sentence on a millennia-old rock, you kinda have to figure some things out. So, I hope you are okay with an episode of the history of the Israelites, from disparate tribes in Canaan to a people who wanted to create a foundation myth for a kingdom they had just recently been allowed to return to, and the king they may have only partially needed to fabricate in order to get that story made. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're going from a man who united his people to a woman who sought to cut her people off from the rest of the world. It's the story of Rana Valona, Queen of Madagascar. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, 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 whoa.